Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Uh, we are happy to start our second lecture in this year history and translation lectures. And today uh, the lecture will be presented by um, Marka Panielic, a lecturer from Royal Holloway University, who will talk about uh, translating the poem. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you very much for coming. Um, so, yeah, translating the poem, Henri Michonique's Poetics of Translating is the title. And uh, obviously you all know that translating poetry is a notoriously difficult task, to the point that it is often considered impossible even. But what exactly does this mean? So what conception of language is such an assertion based on? Henri Michonique's historical anthropology of language, as he calls it, and his theory of translation are of great help when approaching the problem of translating poetry. There cannot be a theory of translation without a theory of language. And this is what makes it so difficult um, and delicate to talk about Michonique's theory of translation. It is inseparable from his language theory with concepts um, that counter many mainstream ideas. So he says himself that it is impossible to understand his, trans his translation theory without being familiar with his concepts of poetics. I will try in the next 50 minutes to present Michonique's particular way of thinking language, referring to his major influences Wilhelm von Humboldt and Emile van Venista, in order to demonstrate the wide-ranging consequences for translation. I intend to briefly present his own way of translating the Bible, uh, talk about what is at stake in his theory of translation, how it goes against certain tradition, which concepts he developed to approach language and translation differently, and finally give some more examples um, of how that looks like in the practice of translation, of his own practice of translation. So this is going to be mostly on language theory. Um, I hope you will agree that it greatly informs our ideas about translation. So, um, yeah, all of that is very much Henri Michonique's poetics of translation. But um, I try to um, provide you with the foundation of understanding his concepts. Because if we don't talk about this first, um, it would be impossible. Yeah, he has a very complex network. It's almost a, like Heidegger. So you really have to get into this kind of thinking in order to bring these difficult ter uh, different terms um, together. So since um, Michonique is very little known in the UK, allow me to first quickly introduce this person. He is a French poet, translator, and linguist, or was, because he died in April 2009. And he left an impressive body of work with some 60 books published that offer an extraordinary theory of language, which interacts with um, poetics, ethics, and politics. So it's a very wide-ranging idea and um, entire way of looking at the world. Um, so of particular relevance for us here are, next to his translations of, part of the parts of the Bible, three theory books as well as several chapters and articles on translation. So the first book is the second part of his series, uh, Pula Poetique, in the early 70s. 
He wrote five books with the same title, more or less, and the second focuses quite a bit on translation theory. Um, so at the start of the 70s. Then the second, Poétique du Traduire, that um, came out in 1999. And the third one is called Éthique et Politique du Traduire and was published in 2007. This last book, so only the last book, which is as such a problem because you cannot really understand that book without having all his work that he did before and 50 other books, more or less. Yeah? It's very difficult to understand this book because he has this style which alludes to many things and he cannot always repeat all the things he's done in all the other books. So it is quite a good idea to start maybe with his critique du rythme or his real idea about poetics before you go into his, his uh, translation theory. But well, that's the situation. You cannot translate all of that now very quickly. But Ethique et politique du traduire was translated into English very recently as Ethics and Politics of Translation. Um, at Benjamin's in 2011 by Pierre Pascal Boulanger. And it is interesting to note, um, I haven't read that translation, I must say, but it is interesting to note that this translation of the title goes somewhat against Michelin's explicit strain, uh, stressing of the activity of translating. Yeah? He does not call his translation theory a poetics of translation, but a poetics of translating. Uh, a bit odd in English, maybe, um, but also Michelin's French formulation is rather unusual and intended to make this point. Uh, it's activity. Activity of language is one of the really focused terms and central terms in Michelin's thinking language. So the English version covers it up from the start, unfortunately. As I said, I'm not sure whether the translation as such is good apart from that, but the title um, is problematic. Um, Michelin is interested, therefore we can already deduce from this title, uh, more in the process than in the product. Yeah? So it's a way of thinking. It's an activity. It's not necessarily only something fixed which we have as a result and as a, as a product. It is difficult to establish a theory that is not part of a wider school. Yeah? And that was exactly Michelin's situation. His very sharp criticism of the major schools of his time, such as hermeneutics, structuralism, and post-structuralism, did not really do much uh, to help him in his endeavors. Now, he countered somehow academic structures and procedures. He was a maverick, but his ideas have been picked up, and people are working with them, uh, particularly in recent years, due to renewed interest in the body and the physicality of language. I actually brought something, so. some props, so that you see that all these things really exist, and Michelin is somebody, um, even though he's not well known here, so these are his two main books on translation uh, studies, and then just recently, um, just uh, two weeks ago, um, this book came out on the Michelin uh, Théoricien de la Traduction uh, in France, in Paris, but by mostly by Italian people who organized that. Um, there's also an article of mine in there, um, but that's in French again. But you see there is now, people work quite a bit with Michelin, and in France Michelin is a great name, and even beyond France, uh, he's extremely influential. But people are not aware of it. <laughs> I'll talk a little bit more about it. So, um, 
The complexity of his concepts and his characteristic style, often elliptic and polemical, make it very difficult to translate Mechenik. So this is another reason, I imagine, why there are not more translations of his work, in spite of the acknowledged importance of his ideas. But his influence in translation studies is considerable, as I said, even though not always overtly acknowledged. So Antoine Berman, uh, for example, was a student, but considered it advantageous not to let his depths be known too much, uh, because Michinik is a problematic figure, and people didn't want, maybe, um, to deal too much with his personality or his work. Uh, George Steiner, however, gave a Michinik quotation as a motto to his After Babel. Uh, three quotes at the very start of After Babel, and one of them, so very early, is by Michinik. So that shows you as well that he is, he is around and was around for a long time. So his, ex his experience of it as a translator of the Bible was in many ways formative for his way of thinking language. His confrontation with the complex Hebrew system of rhythmic accents, the te-amim, as they are called, brought him to develop his conception of language where meaning is constituted in the continuum of speech instead of by words put together. I will explain this notion of continuum better um, in the course of this talk. So the meaning of the word teamim is actually the taste in the mouth, which is beautiful and telling for Michelin's sensual approach to language. He wants to draw our attention to the savor of language. These disjunctive and conjunctive accents in the Hebrew language, create meaning, as Michelin discovered in a very clear way, since they connect or disconnect the words. So due to this creation of the order and organization of the text, with its punctuation, semantics and rhythm, the Bible is for him the best place to experiment with the theory of discourse. According to Michelin, it is the rhythmic accents which establish the reason itself of the text. You fall of the zone mem du text. So consequently, a good translation must invent in another language des équivalences de discours, so equivalences of discourse, that is, equivalences of prosodic, consonantal, and vocalic patterns, um, of metaphor, of wordplay, and of rhythm. The images, sounds, and constellations that constitute meaning must be recreated in translation. That's his main point. But let's see and hear first how he translates the Bible himself. So um, you have a handout there from his uh, translation, Gloire. So that's his translation of the Psalms of the Bible. And uh, he's very, very famous in France for his translation of the Bible. It's really a very special way of doing it and uh, also, again, very influential. So even if you do not speak French, you have it only in French there, some aspects are striking, and you can see it. You don't have to understand it, you see it. So again, we are in the body of language in some ways. Yeah? Um, so first of all, you will notice, do, do you all have uh, one of them? Yeah? There's uh, one person, maybe. Yeah, thank you very much. So you, you will notice the spaces which are supposed to render these hierarchic accents and pauses. Yeah? So at times, um, as you can see in the first line directly, uh, so there, I should have one 
So may I ask you to... Well, that's all right. Um, so at times, this single word gains this very strong position by standing completely on its own, yeah, separated from the rest by empty spaces. Um, as, for example, the key, yeah, who, in the first line. So this, of course, stresses it enormously. Uh, you will also notice that there are many appositions stressed by the same procedure, often producing a syntactic uh, violence, yeah, as Mishnik also admits and uh, intends. So he breaks up. It's not a, a banalizing translation, which completely adapts to the normal word order of French. It breaks it up um, um, intentionally. Yeah, so all of that is done in the service of the original, which is normally, he says, most often banalized um, in translation. And particularly, of course, if it translates from languages which function very differently. Uh, if you have two Romanic languages, it's a lot easier. But if you have Hebrew and French or Chinese and English or whatever, um, it is a very difficult, different situation and that poses different problems, of course. So, Michonic wants to keep what he calls a semantics of position. Uh, that's what he does with, those, with this kind of technique and strategy. A semantics of position. So, position creates meaning. Then, instead of aligning the syntax by saying, for instance, his enemies will bite the dust, he would say, following the original structure of the sentence uh, in Hebrew, and his enemies, of course, uh, the dust they will bite. Uh, so, um, goes against uh, the common natural word order of everyday French. Pauses carry meaning. There's a difference between another by, uh, example that he gives himself, et il sera comme un arbre, and il sera comme un arbre. Donc, and he will be like a tree. So if he says, and he will be like a tree, that adds, of course, a lot of meaning to and he will be like a tree. It actually is quite a different meaning, if you think about it, and can create those kind of uh, charge in language that would otherwise be lost. So the breaks, the pauses that come from those hierarchic accents in Hebrew are somehow rendered in French. <clears throat> so quite often the units um, start by an initializing E, yeah, end. That's a biblical end at the start, um, which is often omitted in other translations because well, the end is not considered to be good style at the start of a sentence in English or French or whatever. Um, um, or it is modulated uh, by using other phrases in other translations, whereas Michelin keeps them all as in the original. So there are lots of these ends, E in French. Mm, and he does it again very much so because he considers them as rhythmic elements. Uh, and therefore as semantic elements. So at times the semantics of sound even primes over the meaning of the words, he says. So he gives the example of having translated the Hebrew Lido Vador. Uh, Lido Vador, literally, that means from generation to generation. But he translated it differently. He said, pour un tour et un tour, for a round and a round would be in English. 
um, thus recreating the repetition of the circular movement of generations, ledor vador, kurentur yeah? netur. The translation in the words is less clear than from generation to generation, but it says it is justified anyway. Um, it might not be exactly the same meaning, meaning, but it carries and transports the meaning in a better way than a more literate translation. All of this creates a feeling of orality, somehow. He calls this typography the visualization of orality. So he wants to make the reader hear the Hebrew in the translation. At times a bit surprising, or in surprising ways, but it is creating the climate of the text, he claims. I will give you a longer quotation now from his introduction to this translation. Um, so it is out of this book, Gloire which gives an excellent condensed idea, uh, idea about his position and which we will explain more in detail over the course of our session. And I will also always give you the French um, version and then translate into English. Yeah? So, um, first French, then English. Selon l'écoute du discontinu seul, les unités sont les mots. Selon l'écoute du contenu, l'unité est le discours, le système du discours, le poème. C'est le poème ici que j'ai voulu traduire. Son réseau de rappel qui fait que les unités mots se prolongent en écho, se continuent partiellement, actuellement, les, aspectuellement, les unes dans les autres. Se communiquent les unes aux autres quelque chose qui n'a pas du sens, mais qui obscurement s'y rapporte, puisqu'il fait partie de leur activité et c'est ce qu'on peut appeler leur force. Ce sont des vases communicants. And the, uh, the translation that I give now in English is my own functional translation, yeah? Um, so it's just for, in this, uh, for this framework here that I try to render it into English. Le poème nécessite donc... Uh, sorry, oh, I forgot this. There's a little paragraph that I haven't read in French. Le poème nécessite donc pas dans la forme, puisque la forme est une des deux discontinuités du signe, ni dans le sens, pour la même raison. Mais dans la tenue, toute banale pourtant, entre syntaxe, so in English, according to the understanding of the discontinuum in its isolation, the units are the words. According to the understanding of the continuum, the unit is the discourse, the system of the discourse, the poem. So he uses poem not as the poem, a piece of literature, but as an attitude. We'll talk about that later as well. It is a poem here, he continues, that I wanted to translate. Its, networks, its network of reminders, which makes the word units prolong themselves in echoes, continue partially in aspects, the ones in the others, communicating the ones to the others, something which is not of the order of meaning, but which obscurely relates to it, since it is part of their activity. And that is what could be called the force. Um, they are connecting vessels. The poem is therefore not situated in the form, since the form is one of the two discontinuities of the sign, nor is it in the meaning for the same reason. But it is, after all, quite banally so, in the positioning of syntax, rhythm, and prosody. So we will have to clarify what these notions of continuum, discourse, activity mean, but it is evident enough that these ideas are all based on language considered not via the, wor the words, but via what happens in between the words. So translating the poem means to translate the continuum of language, not the words, but their articulation, their togetherness. Uh, 
And that's what keeps them together. Very difficult to conceptualize that, of course, to think the flow of life somehow. Yeah? Very difficult. But that's exactly what he does with this, uh, with this theory of rhythm. And that what makes it so special and so interesting and so important. Because that is what life and language is all about. It's the continuum and it's not the segmentation, uh, segmentarization, segmentation, segmentation, thanks. <laughs> Um, so in translating, our notions of language become evidence, says Michelin. Translation, uh, translating shows a confusion between language and discourse. C'est le meilleur poste d'observation sur les stratégies de langage. It's the best observation point for language strategies. In observing language uh, or translation, you can see how people think about language. That is why the theoretical aspect of translation is of great importance to change the theory of language. And since the theory of language is, according to Michenique, decisive for, for our theory of society and of subjectivity, um, what is at stake in the, his translation theory is well, everything. Uh, it's ethics and politi politics. Everything is related to language theory and therefore to translation theory. So he claims for it a fundamental importance in all aspects of life, which is why he calls his theory the historical anthropology of language. Yeah. So anthropology, of course, in the Kantian sense, yeah, it's uh, what it means to be human. Uh, something which affects our vision of the human in general. Consequently, before I explain more in detail what is meant by all of this, it seems necessary to discuss the theory of language which underpins this translation theory. It is all about operations of meaning, and translation is the key lever um, to analyze them. So generally, language is the key to meaning. Yeah. There's a world out there, but all we can know of it passes through language, in one way or another. To apprehend our world, we need symbolic forms, to use Cassirer's term. Our sensual perceptions do not mean anything before being integrated in a conceptual framework. We have to metaphorize perception into sound and sound into meaning. There's no direct access to the world. Facts do not exist in isolation in the human world. Human beings do not really have any direct access to reality. That is things. From coming from Latin res. So our reality, our relation to the things, um, is always determined by our relation to, that, to, to them. And this relation is made up of language. So that is a fundamental premise of thinking language. We cannot know much about reality or truth in itself. What we can know is our relation to it, yeah, is what we make of it in language. And we are constantly in this process of making our reality. So we should understand as much as possible how this functions, logically. No? Our perception and sensations have to be translated into world by language, by a discourse that our community creates over time and into which, at every moment, we have to fit the world we encounter. Yeah, we inscribe ourselves into this um, tradition and develop it at the same time. Um, constantly shifting boundaries of meaning, meaning by doing so. And this is how human beings create their world 
uh, in dealing mentally with uh, diffuse perceptions. Uh, language forms them in a way that they make sense to us. Well, if we are lucky. Yeah? Um, so the mental dimension is constituted in the process of language. Language is therefore not a product, it is always activity. Yeah? And language is constantly in a mutual relationship with the outer world. A constant interaction between form of life and form of language takes place. You can't separate the two. The more our use of language then widens the limits of our mind and thus of our world, the more it is poetic. Yeah, poetic, the word comes from the Greek poiesis or poiein, and that means to make, to create. So actually, in poetics, in language, um, we make our world. So Henri Michonic fought his entire life to promote this way of thinking language, uh, this conception of poetics. Um, he mocked philosophers who aspired to the things themselves about uh, which they thought they could think without taking into account language. Uh, this eternal rivalry or enmity between language and philosophy. So he ironically asked those who believed to be able to do without language to, to shut up. <laughs> that would be the consequence. So his polemical inclination earned him quite a few enemies. Certainly one of the reasons why his undoubtedly very important ideas are not more widely spread and received. Emile Benveniste, one of Michonique's main references, one of the major linguists um, in France, um, mostly in the 50s, 60s, 70s, when he died then, um, so Emile Benveniste uh, criticized this lack of awareness about the functioning of our use of language and consequently of our functioning as human beings altogether. So since operations of our thinking become manifest in language, it is often thought that thinking and speaking are two separate things. Uh, the old tradition coming from Aristotle is um, they are only united for the purpose of communication. Yeah, first we think something and then we use language in order to pass it on. Language would then be only the instrument that allows the expression of thought. And Benveniste demonstrated the absurdity of this commonplace idea. The content of thought is indefinable outside of language, she proved. There's no form to it without language. It does simply only exist in language. So it does not make any sense to believe in thinking without language, she says. At least if we do not want to define thinking simply as anything going on in our brain, brain but as an activity of meaning. Uh, there are of course different definitions of thinking, but if we want to stick to it as an activity of meaning, we need language. So even if images, moods, sounds, etc. pass through our mind, all of these still need to be translated into language in order to be part of a system of meaning. Form and content cannot be conceived of independently from one another. Even if this truth is generally accepted for quite some time now, its consequences still do not seem to be taken into account. For instance, if there's something unspeakable, this is necessarily so because it is not thought. Then Veniste formulated this as follows. C'est ce qu'on peut dire qui délimite et organise ce qu'on peut penser. So it is what one can say which defines and organizes that which one can think. The unspeakable is consequently the unthinkable. 
And that is the case since our language does not allow us to think it. So we have to develop, therefore, our capacity to think, say. And that is, of course, possible. And is constantly happening. Yeah? It's constantly shifting in what we can think and say. That is, according to Michonique, then, this activity of the poem. So the categories of language define the framework of thought, as Benvenista developed. But does this mean, then, that we are enclosed in our language, uh, English, German, French, whatever, um, that each language imposes its own way of thinking, and that, as a consequence, translation is impossible? Are there then also languages that are more suitable than others to think certain things, for instance? Yeah? That's a dilemma, no? If, if it was like that, it would be terrifying, because that means then e either languages have particular qualities, and then there would be grounds for linguistic racism, as existed some time ago, or it is impossible to distinguish between languages at all. Well, Benveniste's answer to this is clear. No language in itself favors nor hinders the activity of the mind. Achievements in this respect are rather related to the capacities of individuals and therefore to general cultural conditions. So you always need some kind of framework which is there and then it depends on you what you do with them. And that can be done anywhere. Um, so Mishnik formulates the problem in a different manner. I quote him again. L'issue est justement ceci que l'interaction n'est pas un déterminisme, mais l'activité du discours sur la langue et de la langue sur le discours, de la littérature sur la langue et de la langue sur la littérature, de la culture sur la langue et de la langue sur la culture. So, the issue is exactly that the interaction is not a determinism, but the activity of discourse on language and of language on discourse of literature on language and of language on literature, of culture on language and of language on culture. So it's a constant interaction of all these different factors going on. And this simply means that language, as in the French word la langue, or the national language, yeah, French, German, English, whatever, does not really exist. Michelin yeah. really denies that la langue as such exists. Um, it is always, as he says, whenever we encounter language, it is language as in the French le langage. No? Le langage is different from la langue. Le langage means the personally used language somehow. Yeah? And that implies some concrete interaction. So really the language in its actualization. That's the only thing that we have. Everything else is abstraction. This interaction, of course, is a reference to Wilhelm von Humboldt and to his notion of Wechselwirkung. Interaction. So Humboldt is really the main uh, precursor of Mechanique and the greatest thinker of language of all times, if you ask me. So in language, everything is part of a continuous process. Uh, there's a constant interaction of different elements. Continuous process, constant shifting uh, around. So it is true that every time we speak, uh, so parole in French, we assist a struggle between the force of language as langue, yeah, as a national language with the conventions, with everything that has been already established, grammar, dictionary, and so on. Um, so convention of language. And the power of the speaking subject who wants to pass beyond the conventional and who, precisely by doing so, 
becomes the subject of the parole in speaking, in the proper language. So each time you really speak, you transgress the convention that which is already um, offered to you by language. Yeah? If you really create language in that moment, you go beyond the conventions. You transgress, you widen it, and that's this creative moment of language. So this, by the way, is less a situation of war, as Michonique likes to call it quite often, but a state of creativity. Jürgen Trabant, uh, an eminent um, German scholar and thinker of language, uh, formulated as, uh, as the following, so language, longer, is a system of possibilities, not a system of constraints. So it always offers you the possibility of going beyond the rules. It is indeed Benveniste's notion of discourse, yeah, discours, to which Michonique refers in the quotation I just gave. So again, Benveniste is important here. His notion of dis discours is very different from, let's say, the Foucauldian definition of discourse. Um, so I have to explain quickly uh, what it means, because it is crucial for thinking what happens in language and also for how to translate a poem. Benveniste defines discourse as being la langue en tant qu'assumé par l'homme, par l'homme qui parle et dans la condition d'intersubjectivité. Um, so that is language, yeah, so discourse is language as it is appropriated by the human being who speaks and in the condition of intersubjectivity. So, in other words, language manifests itself exclusively in the form of discourse, according to Benveniste. Each time we speak, that's language. There is no abstract thinking independent from us speaking at that moment. And this is in, li in line with uh, Wilhelm von Humboldt, who said at the start of the 19th century already, Die Sprache liegt nur in der verbundenen Rede. Grammatik und Wörterbuch sind kaum ihrem Totengerippe vergleichbar. So translate, language exists only in the continuum of speech. Grammar and lexicology are barely comparable to its dead skeleton. I really like the dead skeleton, by the way. So he really wraps it in. Um, you need the actualiza actualization of language. Yeah? If you just have abstract ideas about language, that's not what makes language. So there is no longer than this is nothing but an abstraction. There's always only language, langage, which becomes manifest in discourse. In each moment, an, an individual, a subject speak, speaks. So language is a worldview, eine Weltansicht, according to Humboldt. A translation must therefore be able to recreate what happens in the original, in another worldview. You have to render the worldview. Even more so, since an author of literature develops their own language, their own personal language, their own worldview, uh, each time that he really creates li uh, literature. They do so even within their own language. Uh, it's not something that is only a problem of translation. We, all the time, have to translate in our own language what other people mean and say. There's no complete um, understanding possible, generally. So this worldview, world specific to the subject of literature, should be considered in the target language. That is to say that the translator must also develop their own language in order to recreate the processes involved in the original. The translation of a literary work must do what the literary work does. Yeah? 
in its own language, thus writing it again and for the first time in a certain way. So this idea invokes uh, the infamous Pierre Menard. Uh, you might know this figure of one of Borges' stories, um, who rewrites Cervantes' Don Quixote uh, centuries afterwards exactly the same, word by word, but without copying it. He really rewrites it. He repeats the act of creating the entire Don Quixote um, um, and invents, therefore, exactly the same creative act. Yeah? So this is one of Borges' typical experiments of thoughts. Yeah? Very fascinating story. So this is, of course, absurd. Yeah? It's not possible, we would say. But we have to imagine such a reconstitution to designate some of the goalposts uh, for a translator of literature. So this infinitely complex process, even impossible to achieve completely, takes place also in every act of language, in each understanding of somebody else. Yeah? This is not a problem of different languages. We never get to understand each other perfectly. Understanding always possesses a zone of non-understanding. It's even in everyday life you never hear everybody, everything somebody says. You hear only about every third word. But in your own language you have developed the mechanisms to fill in the gaps between these every third word and you understand. Not always completely correctly, but it's possible. Therefore it's also that's the reason why it's so difficult to understand in foreign languages, because there as well we hear only every third word, the word, but it's a lot harder for us to fill in the gaps in between. So the perception of language is really quite a complex thing. <coughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, we never get to understand, oh, okay, um, alterity remains inaccessible. Now, each translation and every exchange are decontextualizing, and for this reason a translation is necessarily something other than the original. But since it is also recontextualizing, it can be just as rich or as or even richer than the source text. So finally we each live in our own world, and in spite of many points of convergence with others, we never reach complete congruency. However, we should not see this fact as frustrating, as most people do, uh, quite the contrary. It is fortunate that we operate this way, because that is the basis for the infinite richness of the world. Leibniz, a famous philosopher of the 17th century, was the first to realize that this multitude of worldviews is the condition of the richness of the functioning of our mind. La merveilleuse varieté de ces opérations. Yeah, the wonderful variety of its operations. Uh, Leibniz was German but wrote in French, as it was done in those years. So interpretation and understanding always take place at the individual level. We are all different and we all have different, our own worldviews. So what does all of this now signify for the translation of poetry? Of the poem, I should say, rather. According to Benveniste, artistic expression is semantique sans semiotique, yeah? semantics without semiotics. Yeah? Artistic expression, semantics without semiotics. Semiotics refers um, for Benveniste to the functioning of the sign, whereas semantics refers to, to discourse. Language is both, actually. It is a system of double signifiance, yeah? a double signifying function. 
function in this sign. Yeah? Each word stands for something else, but it functions also in this togetherness, in the continuum, in discourse, as Beminist calls it. So this process of granting meaning is different depending on whether one looks at it semiotically or semantically. That means we are dealing with something else when semantics is taken into account. The discourse in its continuum instead of discontinuous science. Different approaches, different attitudes to what language is actually doing. So semantics possesses, therefore, a surplus of meaning. It signifies more, at times even something else, than semiotics. So the meaning of the entire thing can go against the meaning of the single, single words. And this is the case, above all, in literature, in language as an art form. People really try to experiment with language, to do things with language. It's not only about communicating something clear, close the door, or whatever, but it is about creating a world, about creating something new, which has not been thought before. So Michonik's life was a struggle against the thinking of the sign. Yeah, this is really this is a, this is the enemy. The sign, as such, sign thinking, is wrong because it neglects the semantics. It is only semiotics, only things in terms of these different elements. And of course, he did all of that in the name of what he calls poetics. So he calls the sign in schizophrenie complete, in folie pure. So the sign is a complete schizophrenia, a pure madness. Yeah, he gets quite violent often. Um, so the traditional separation of signifier and signified, the splitting up of form and content for him is completely absurd. He wrote, Ce que la semiotique ne comprend pas, c'est que dans l'œuvre d'art, l'unité n'est pas un signe. Que l'œuvre ne devient une œuvre qu'à partir du moment où il y en a en elle du sémantique sans sémantique même si, jusqu'à un certain niveau de lecture, elle est faite des unités à double articulation, comme toutes les autres pratiques du langage. Translated, what semiotics does not understand, so what the people who think in terms of the sign uh, do not understand, is that in the work of art, the unit is not a sign. That the work of art becomes a work of art only from that moment on when there is semantics without semiotics. So when we do not consider the single elements anymore, but the entire thing. Even if, up to a certain level of reading, it is done of units of, do of double articulation, as all other practices of language. So recognize, of course, there are still signs, yeah? obviously. But that's not the point. That's not what happens in art. That's not what happens in life, neither. You can always take the single units, but that's, that's something else. Then. That's that, then. That's a dead skeleton, again, of language that you deal with, not the living oeuvre d'art, <coughs> work of art. So even if Michonik does not deny the existence of semiotics, he opposes its exclusive role. If one wants to consider a work of art as such, one also has to take into account its specificity. Semantics, more than semiotics, play the prime role for him. Art draws our attention to the process of signification, the signifying function. Michonique applies this to a translation. Il suffit de penser discours, œuvre littéraire, rythme et prosodie comme signifiance dans un système de discours. 
pour conceptualiser et mettre en pratique que ce qu'on traduit, ou plutôt qu'on a à traduire, n'est pas de la langue, mais ce qu'un discours fait de sa langue. Et on passe du génie de la langue au génie des écrivains, ce qui est tout autre chose, puisque ce qu'on lisait, ce qu'on attribuait à la langue, était ce que l'écrivain en avait fait. So, it is enough to think discourse, he says, literary work, rhythm and prosody as signifying functions in a system of discourse. Um, to conceptualize and put into practice that what one translates, or rather what one has to translate, is not language, but what the discourse makes of its language. Then we shift from the genius of a language to the genius of a writer, which is something completely different. Because what one read, what one attributed to language, uh, was what the writer made of it. So it's really each time individual act the creative process of creating language, not the general abstract idea of the national language which makes it. The problem is therefore that when supposedly translating only the meaning, one never translates the full meaning because the meaning is related to a network of associations proper to its language. And this loss has to be regained by rhythm and prosody. The translator then has to recreate the discourse, this act of language which goes beyond the meaning of the words. So if you only focus on the words in translating, you will miss the point. Because these words have different associations in every language. You can never really fully translate that. So you have to find other ways of translating the signifiance, this signifying process which is there as well. The sign is not sufficient to think what happens in the literary world. So is there then a particularity of the translation of poetry? And yes, of course there is, but only in the sense that the poem, so rather not poetry, but the poem, is the invention of discourse. That it is language, uh, langage again, the actualized language, which creates something new. And this goes beyond the traditional definition of poetry and suggests that the poem can be found also in prose. Yeah? So the poem, for Michonique, translating the poem is not a particular form of text. It's generally um, the functioning of language and of our mind and um, an activity. So Michonique writes, Chapelle poème, here is his uh, definition of poème, poem, J'appelle poème la transformation d'une forme de vie par une forme de langage et la transformation d'une forme de langage par une forme de vie. Toutes deux inséparablement. Ou je dirais encore une invention de vie dans et par une invention de langage. Ou encore un maximum d'intensité de langage. De vie au sens d'une vie humaine. In English, I call a poem the transformation of a form of life by a form of language. And the transformation of a form of language by a form of life, both inseparably. Or I would even add an invention of life in and by an invention of language, or even a maximum of intensity of language, life in the sense of a human life. Yeah? It's really always this combination, language informs our life, our life informs language, there's no separation, it is one single process. So a poem is invention of discourse, and invention of discourse means invention of life. 
for Michelin. The poem is for him not the product or work of art anymore, but an activity. Not ergon, but energeia, as in the very famous quote um, uh, by Wilhelm von Humboldt. Yeah? Language is not ergon, but energeia. It is um, not a product, but an activity. A poem is not a literary form, but a process of transformation. A poem is a process of transformation form. As such, naturally, it cannot be defined formally. Yeah. Michelin calls poetry a way of thinking, in pensée, a way of thinking, the maximal relationship between life and language. So once we have really this interaction between our, our speech, our parole, and um, life, it really informs our life directly, then we are in this activity of the poem. If we accept this definition of the poem, anthropology becomes poetics, and poetics becomes anthropology. Yeah? Again, anthropology in, in this sense of uh, thinking about what it means to be human. This means that we have a poetological anthropology, uh, that's really what, what um, Michelin allows us to think, to develop. Um, and it is, includes the infinite meaning and history. The poem is therefore, in Michelin's definition, an acte éthique, parce qu'il fait du sujet. Il vous fait du sujet. Uh, it's an ethical act, because it makes a subject, makes a subject of you. So what he calls rhythm, the central term of his theory, enables him to conceptualize this idea about what a poem is and does. But it is in contrast to how rhythm is normally understood. Uh, normally, rhythm is understood as the regular wave-like coming and going associated with metrics, right? Um, Michelin's use of the term rhythm refers to Benveniste's discovery of the pre-Platonic meaning of rhythm. Um, Benveniste demonstrated that rhythmos is related to rain, to flow, and that this was, before Plato, never used for the sea, uh, with the waves, but for a river. Rhythmos therefore originally referred to a constant flowing movement, and not to this alternating, alternating tidal ebb and flow. The meaning of rhythm was consequently the activity of giving form, but with the particularity of being form in movement without organic consistency, and always subject to change, as the minister defines it. Um, I give another little quote of this uh, very interesting definition of rhythm, <coughs> of the pre-Platonic rhythm um, by Benveniste. It says, La forme dans l'instant qu'elle est assumée parce qu'il y a mouvant, mobile, fluide, la forme de ce qui n'a pas consistance organique. C'est la forme improvisée, momentanée, modifiable. So, Rhythm is a form in the moment that it is taken on by what is moving, mobile, fluid. The form of what has no organic consistence. It is the improvised, <coughs> momentary, modifiable form. Rhythmos is therefore an arrangement in constant change. Vishnik successfully applies Benveniste's archaeological linguistics to an overarching theory of language and society. He formulates it thus, le rythme dépasse la mesure. Yeah, so, that's a very good example as well for the often witty style of Michonique. Yeah, a translation into English cannot, cannot really work the same way, but 
I suggest rhythm out measures meter. When we talk about rhythm with Michonique, we are not talking about regularity or meter, but about form without fixed consistency. Form assumed in a single moment. And as such, the concept of rhythm has to be combined with another concept drawn from Benveniste, discourse. We had that. So Michonique defines rhythm as the moment of discourse. Rhythm is what reigns over speech. Michonique formulates this as, fol as follows. A partir de Benveniste, le rythme peut ne plus être une sous-catégorie de la forme. C'est une organisation, disposition, configuration d'un ensemble. Si le rythme est dans le langage, dans un discours, il est une organisation, disposition, configuration du discours. Et comme le discours n'est pas séparable de son sens, le rythme est inséparable de, du sens de ce discours. So, after Benveniste, says Michonique, rhythm cannot be a subcategory of form anymore. It is an organization, disposition, configuration of an ensemble. If rhythm is a language and discourse, it is an organization, disposition, configuration of the discourse. And since the discourse is not separable from its meaning, the rhythm is inseparable of the meaning of this discourse. End of course. So rhythm for Michonique is consequently no formal metrical principle, but a semantic principle the way each concrete instance of speech makes sense, creates meaning. This also implies that there's no structure to be drawn from it. It is different each time, unique and unforeseeable, and an apparent repetition of an enunciation is different from a previous instance too, because the context is necessarily different, even if only by virtue of the one instance having preceded the other. You know, an example would be repetition in music. A repeated phrase is never the same phrase as any of the previous instances precisely because they have already been heard and thereby take on a different role. And the listener, by having already heard them, is different as well. So rhythm for Michonique is not the rigid metrical arrangement of language. It is language in movement, the flow of language in its continuum. He often points out that Saussure also, who is, as we know today, after having read more of his notes, um, is misinterpreted most of the time by the structuralists. Yeah? He also used, instead of these very clear separate units that the structuralist made of Saussure, he also very liked uh, the metaphor and used the metaphor, le fleuve du langage, so the stream of language, which of course would be an effort of thinking this continuum. Consequently, rhythm always refers to the whole. Michonique describes this continuum of language as les vivants dans son histoire, yeah, the living being in its history. This leads him to use the term of historicity quite often, to refer to the unique moment of speech with its context and its situation. The continuum is what connects the words, which uh, are otherwise meaningless. Rhythm is the organization of this continuum. It is the organization of movement in speech. Uh, that's the idea. It's so, diffi so difficult to conceptualize yeah, movement in speech. We, we don't really have the concepts for that. And Michelique offers us here a possibility of dealing with that, of having a concept, rhythm. So the organization of movement in speech, the organization of a discourse by a subject and of a subject by their discourse. So the subject, in doing that, organizes 
him herself as well you know, becomes a subject just in doing that, organizing speech, organizing language and movement. So here we are not dealing neither with sound nor, nor with form, but with the subject. But really, that's what makes us the subject, the human being that we are in each single moment. It obviously does not and cannot create a totalizing unity of meaning. Rhythm always remains open. It finds its unity only momentarily and inscribes the subject and its situation in discourse. The movement of language is organized by discourse. Rhythm testifies to the uniqueness of the speech and thus of its radical historicity. The poem to translate, then, is the literary as such, yeah. or more generally, poetic thinking, to translate that. Michelin defines this poetic thinking, um, la pensée poétique est la manière particulière dont un sujet transforme en surmontant les modes de signifier, de sentir, de penser, de comprendre, de lire, de voir, de vivre dans le langage. C'est un mode d'action sur le langage. La pensée poétique est ce qui transforme la poésie. So in English, poetic thinking is a particular way how a subject, while at the same time inventing themselves, transforms the modes of signifying, of feeling, of, of thinking, of understanding, of reading, of seeing, of living in language. It is a mode of acting on language. Poetic thinking is what transforms poetry. So, since this poetic thinking becomes manifest in discourse, the discourse has to be translated. Yeah, so the entire thing, not the words. This implies that the translation of the poem has to do instead of simply to say. According to Michelinique, we have to traduire ce que les mots ne disent pas, mais ce qu'ils font. So we have to translate what the words do not say, but what they do. If we translate a poem, in this sense, yeah, uh, the translation has to be a poem. It must be an invention of discourse as well. In this perspective, Michelinique can state Quelle que soit la langue, il n'y a qu'une source, c'est ce que fait un texte. Il n'y a qu'une cible, faire dans l'autre langue ce qu'il fait. Ça, c'est du réalisme. And so, whatever the language is, there's only one source, he says. And that is what a text does. There's only one target, to do in the other language what it does. That is what I call realism. End of quote. So what does all this mean? concerning the unspeakable, yeah, and also that is related to poetry very often. So in poetry, as I have demonstrated elsewhere, the unspeakable is rather the inaudible, since a poem resides precisely in what is not audible in the words, yeah, and what, what is not said directly. Paul Celan, for example, affirms the existence of poetry quia, uh, quia absurdum, the absurd is etymologically that which derives from the inaudible, actually. So in this perspective, the poem is the unspeakable, and the unspeakable makes the poem. This then means that the unspeakable is sad. Yeah? It finds its expression in the poem. This implies that the poem opens up our thinking, <coughs> since it indicates that there is still space for the enigmatic. It confronts us with the possibility of newness. Michonique stresses that écrire, c'est dire l'indicible, le faire. Traduire, c'est traduire l'intraduisible. So writing is saying the unspeakable, doing it. Translating is translating the untranslatable. So it's a paradoxical formulation, obviously. Huh? And that refers to a position 
that is based on the act of saying rather than on what is said. Predicts is in charge of thinking language, discourse, the movement of language in speech, instead of reducing it to communication in the sense of the sign. The same is true for the translation of the poem. That's why we have to translate the movement of language. So with all of this in mind, Michonique calls the translation bad, but instead of recreating the poetics of the text, that is the rhythm and continuum, the translation replaces it by units of language. When the semantics of the continuum is replaced by the discontinuum of the sign, when the organization of a system of discourse where everything is connected is destroyed, that is every translation believing in meaning lying in the single words instead of in the organization. All of that is bad. Forgive me that I had to talk so much before getting to this point that it's probably that what you are most interested in. So I give you a few more elements of how he concretely wants to then have translations. There are lots of works by him on concrete criticism of existing translations. Um, He explains his way, his own procedure of translating. I gave you a few examples, I'll give a few more (coughs) in in a minute. So, bad as well are for him also translations which replace this historicity by historicism. That is, which are oriented towards fashions or historically fixed ideas which will lead to quickly outdated translations. A good translation then is one for him which is as much literature or a poem as we defined it before as the translated work. That implies that um, the translation invents its own predicts and replaces the solutions of languages along by problems of discourse. Not the conventions of language but it is really what's going on in each single moment of discourse. So such a translation invents language problems and constellations as the original work invented them. This also implies that there's no dogmatism and that there's an infinity of possible good translations. Michelin established nonetheless a list of four errors to avoid. They are A. Suppressions, but obviously B. Additions, C. Shifts, and D. Problems of concordance. So that means either non-concordance, that is when a unit of meaning is rendered by different units of meanings at different occasions, or counter-concordance, and that is when several units of meanings are rendered by one single unit of meaning. Due to the sound (coughs) links that are created, if you translate the same word by different words in another language, that cannot be done then anymore. You cannot understand how the connections of sound and associations work in the original. So all of that obviously is true, but we should not forget that in translating we are constantly torn between conflicting interests, and we have to decide from case to case, I suppose, whether prosodic or sound aspects prime over the real denotation of the word. Michonik's theory stresses that language is more than science, which communicates um, a content supposedly lying outside of language. This has to be taken into account when translating. (coughs) We have to consider the signifying functions apart from the logic of the sign, and rather in the sound patterns and prosody.
So this is probably helpful to look now at the end, I'm almost done, um, again at some examples, examples given by Mishonik from his own experience of translating the Bible again. So he points at the importance of the accents and the consequences of not taking them into account. For instance, the famous sentence of Psalm 22, yeah, is always translated as, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And trans Mishonik translated that as, Mon Dieu, mon Dieu, à quoi tu abandonné? Since a small difference of rhythm changes everything. So if the conjunctive accent of lama is on the first syllable, it means why. Yeah, why has thou forsaken me? But it is actually on the second syllable. And then it means for what person? Uh, for what purpose? Sorry. So that is why Mishnah translates aqua. Aqua tu abandonné. Not pourquoi. And so, um, for what purpose have you abandoned me? The why actually does not ask for reasons in the past of being abandoned, but for reasons in the future. What is it good for? So there we see how accents uh, really make, create meaning, yeah? very much so in the Hebrew original. That makes quite a difference, doesn't it? So Mishnik opted also for using these blank spaces that we mentioned at the start for the pauses to show the words connected by the accent system. Another biblical example um, is the famous voice which supposedly in Isaiah 15.3 uh, cries in the wilderness. You know? Actually, the pause has not been correctly translated. Well, the King James Bible, as everybody else, still translated the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. It is rather, as a new English Bible then as well, later on, uh, acknowledged, and as Mishnik has shown, there is a voice that cries, Prepare a road for the Lord through the wilderness, clear a highway across the desert for our God. So very different meaning here, just because people did not read the pauses, the accent correctly. So it's, it's in the sound, the meaning, it's in the in the semantics, not in the words. Mishnik has also analyzed the name Ophelia and Hamlet, to give you a last example, so often coupled with the attribute fair, fair Ophelia, an obvious paronomasia, fair Ophelia. But he noticed that the 20 times the name Ophelia appears, it is always in connection with mostly consonantal elements of the name, thus creating a rich network of meaning characterizing Ophelia and her destiny. So it's a really an entire network of words all around this Ophelia, made up of the name Ophelia in a certain way, and creating then the meaning of Ophelia. So meaning is therefore not created by words, neither by the etymology of the name Ophelia. We are simply talking about sound patterns here, created by the subject of the poem, by a semantics of prosody. Consonantal and vocal prosodic relations mutually motivate the name Ophelia and its textual environment. So if Ophelia appears next to the words fear and affection, the translation has to find structures recreating these links. Yeah? Ophelia, fear, affection. Feared Ophelia is badly translated by the literal canale Ophelia. So in the translation you don't have this sound pattern at all. The connection is not done anymore. And uh, Michonique uh, suggests alternatives such as set Ophelia. Huh? You must consider those options where you really go away from the literal meaning in order to create links and connections which are meaningful, which are semantic. 
So all of this underlies again and again that the unit to be translated is not the word, but the text. The texture of language, the tissue here, um, discourse. Really. So, um, yeah, sorry, I've been talking over an hour now, almost, and uh, I hope that you can use some of these elements in your own work. And, yeah. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much for this. Uh, I first of all think that because the subject is that specific, uh, we need to add extra time to the presentation because it gives us an idea to be inside the uh, thinking. So well, but nobody yeah, could, it, it could pay yes. attention to that for longer, I suppose. I really stretched your yeah. patience very much. Maybe so, a seminar or so, yeah. Uh, so, your questions, please. Well, for me, very clearly, my first language, which I prefer to think in, which I feel most at home, um, and in my own thinking, is German. But when I speak English, obviously, I speak in, I think in English, and when I speak French, I, I, I think in French. And in other languages, I manage more or less as well to get to that point. Yeah, I, you actually cannot think in another language and speak a different language at the same time. It's not really possible. That's why this is a crucial point when you learn a language. Really know that you make the transition and you're not just putting words together in a certain way that kind of communicates some kind of situation or facts, but you really speak the language at that moment when you think it. Before that, you, you are not really speaking the language. You are communicating bribes and bits. So it's a very very valid question in this context. You're right. It's a very good test for seeing what really happens in language. Mm. Yes. Um, there's just one concept in trying to work that I sort of struggle with in my reading. I wonder if you could share your answer. There are many people who read his work and especially not language. And it claims to have an ideological view of the text going against this theological discipline, you know, the enemy of the text. And I sort of wonder whether this implies that you think history of language is sort of experience of subjectivity. His theory of politics is experience? Is, um, Sorry, I don't know. His theory of language that he's developing, yeah. if he's going against the theological and political that's in our current theory of language, is he experience of subjectivity in his position now? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so he uses these terms. Yeah, he says it's a politics of rhythm. Yeah, he says this language theory, theory which I try to um, present today, is extremely political in his uh, understanding of it because it somehow uh, would um, act on all our other ways of being. Yeah? So if we have our, a vision of ourselves, of subjectivity, in language which is created at every moment. That would have vast consequences of everything, of our institutions, of the forms we live together. So that is then not political or theological in, in the traditional way, that there is a set of rules that you adapt to, but it's this idea of really creating 
that at every single instant. So it's a, it's a different approach to that. Again, with this interest of, of thinking life in its living moment, in, in its continuum. Um, this is, of course, a little bit delicate because uh, um, we need also institutions yeah? and we also need the sign. Yeah? It's, it's impossible to think without signs as well. Yeah? It's just because they are there. Um, when we have the continuum of language, there are still signs. We have duple signifiance. They are both working at the same time. Um, and we also have to have some orientation in life. But there's probably this difference between this general framework of conventional meaning that we need in order to know where we are at, at every moment and going beyond that as well in order to maintain the idea of living life. Yeah? So if we, if we were able to integrate that kind of thinking into politics and into institutions and into translation and into everything else, that would make quite a vast difference. But it's very difficult to do that. Yeah? So that's also why he has he struggles with it. Yeah, he's written, I don't know, as I said, 60 books. It's all about the same thing. <laughs> um, so he's constantly refining um, his ways of dealing with that, of course, working on all kinds of different elements. But it's all about that. Thinking, making, making life intelligible. That is very, very difficult to conceptualize. Did I answer the question? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, so we have a um, lecture in a couple of weeks' time on the Bilbao. Um, and I wondered um, if you could say anything about how mission this Bilbao and its construction in general, because some of the, the philosophy of language behind uh, this picking um, in terms of the principles sound very similar to the practice. Yeah, it's a very delicate uh, topic. Um, Michonique um, attacked Derrida uh, very harshly quite often. Um, he believes that in Derrida you still have some kind of thinking of the sign in spite of everything that Derrida would claim for himself. But there's one, one quote that Michonique always gives um, of Derrida uh, where Derrida talks about the hermenoin of language, yeah, of the words. And that is for him the sin, the, the downfall of Derrida. <laughs> well, that proves that Derrida really does not really think language correctly. So for him, uh, Derrida does not have the, the right language theory. But I would agree with you that there are a lot of common points. And uh, it is actually a problem that Michonique uh, opposed so many other thinkers who are actually not that far away in some aspects of what he wanted to do. But um, Michonique was without compromise there. Yeah? If, if there were some notions that did not work, that did not have the real approach to thinking this continuum, then he would be very violent in his rejection. Which is problem. That's why he did not make it, he, he kind of shocked everybody else in, in Parisian uh, intellectual life. And so at some point they said, well, you do your stuff, yeah, and we do our stuff. It, it's really a problem. He, he did some damage to his really very interesting ideas. Everybody recognized, well, that's interesting. Mishnik is interesting, but you cannot really deal with him. He's too violent. So there are common points, um, and it's a shame. And uh, there should be a study on 
going more into detail how far if, uh, they really are, have common points and ideas. But there are also differences. Okay, well, maybe we will close now formal discussion and we'll continue our informal discussion with a glass of wine or something. Thank you so much indeed. Thank you. We invite everybody to have a drink.